You're listening to an Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. AGO Talks are recorded live in the gallery and feature artists, writers, and curators exploring how art shapes and inspires us. Please visit us online at ago.net slash talks. So on the left, uh, an image which is we now know is the first painting Patterson did. So um, there are two paintings at the University of uh, Western Ontario which were thought to be that. Patterson remembered them as such. And then one day a relative sent this to him in the mail. He looked at it and he said, hmm, that's actually the first one I did. It's copied from a bank calendar. And uh, I then, uh, those of you who know me, know what I said yet next. Uh, could we have it at the Art Gallery of Ontario? And um, he gave it to us. And so it's up in the exhibition. And to the right, a still life from 1947 also, or 48, a very early painting, done at a time when Patterson is just trying to figure out how to paint. Okay, So he's studying with Goodrich Roberts at the Montreal Museum School. He's struggling to figure out how to put objects together in a certain sequence. But at that very moment, he also gets introduced to the automatist through his first wife, Francois Sullivan, and he starts to show both in the context of basically Anglophone Montreal, which is figurative, and Francophone Montreal, which is abstract. And in fact, paintings related to this are actually shown in 1950, both in the Montreal Museum Spring Exhibition and in a, in a um, Salon de Refusé, which was a project put on in protest of the spring exhibition in 1950 in Montreal, and he was in both, showing figurative work in both. And the automatists put him in the rebellion, the, the, the rebellious exhibition, to make the point that they were more open than the Anglophone side of Montreal, and therefore they could put uh, uh, figurative work in an abstract exhibition. The image on the left, which is in the exhibition, is of a automatist poet, Rémy Paul Forgue, very influenced by Bonnard, um, but a 1950 work, and on the right, the interior of his studio. So that was actually his studio in 1950, which was the dining room of the family home. It isn't until 1954 that he makes his first abstract painting. This is the image on the left. Uh, he told me that he was temperamentally incapable of being an automatist because he couldn't give up that kind of control. And in fact, the more I think about Patterson, I think he never truly became an abstract painter either. So as much as he was interested in the notion of freedom and uh, release that's represented by abstract painting, he never could give up the idea that he lived in the world of representation. So I thought of that today as I was walking through the exhibition, and I guess I must have thought of it before, because when you walk into the exhibition, the first images you see are by Goodrich Roberts, who was his most important teacher. And Goodrich was committed to the notion of transcribing your sensation uh, in relation to the visible world. On the right is Climbing Moons from 1958. Um, not an abstract painting, although it sort of looks it, but in fact a representation, a sort of... Um, uh, foreboding or a foreshadowing of a lifelong interest in the notion of the skies, of the uh, planets. And uh, this also was a painting that I had tracked for a long time and requested as a gift, which came to us from Brian McDonald. Brian McDonald is one of Canada's most important choreographers and ballet directors, and he actually introduced 
Patterson to his first wife, Francoise Sullivan, which isn't the reason why I wanted the painting, although I thought it was interesting in relation to the collection. I wanted the painting because it so much foreshadows the later images of moons. So Lifestream, 1959, and Untitled, 1962. And again, just pause on both images and think about the way in which they, in fact, represent something. Okay, so Lifestream as an idea is, I think, very resonant for Patterson. It's something that uh, I actually think is a constant in his work throughout his career. This notion of something moving through space, of changing over time, of moving from one place to another, and whether it's a self-portrait or whether it's a painting that traces a line or whether it's the notion of something celestial in the sky, it often is moving from one place to another. And I think that on some level, Patterson always thought that his painting was autobiographical. So Lifestream from 1959, and then on the right, Untitled from 1962, which was done precisely at the time when Patterson was doing a series of abstract paintings, quote abstract, that were based on the night sky. He was a manager, in a, he was a personnel manager in a factory at the time, and he painted only in the evenings. Uh, these are two small paintings, but again, they, he starts to... What happens here is he actually... Uh, the story that isn't actually in the book is that he had some marital issues. He ended up moving into a studio with Guido Molinari and Claude Toussignan, and he started to try to think through... This is 1964, 65, 66, how to actually do hard-edge painting and actually move into the world of optics in the way that they did, but he could never quite get there. And so he never quite did the hard-edge line. And these are two free-form geometric paintings. Image on the left is a life stream from 1969, and on right, rain triptych, 1970. It's not uninteresting to think about these two images in relation to two of the images of Patterson where I said, what is the traverse between that photograph of him and that photograph of him? Because in a way, that's what I'm always following with Patterson, is how did things change over time? This is only a year apart, 1969, 1970, and there's a world, in a sense, a world of difference. They're both about phenomenology, so that is a life stream, which, again, I think is this notion of something that moves through space. And Rain Triptych actually um, was a one of his first paintings that he did when he gave up the, quote, abstract painting, where he was trying to um, communicate the pleasure that he received from thinking about his childhood memories of scientific magazines and illustrations that explained how the world worked. So Rain Triptych tells you that wherever you're standing... And if, you, if this was Patterson, if I were Patterson, I would say I'm an amateur scientist. I don't actually know this to be true. So I'm going to say the same. I'm going to tell you something that he told me, and I don't know if it's true. But what he said was that wherever you stand, you get hit by raindrops of the same size because the wind sorts raindrops according to their size. Now, I don't know, there may be somebody here who wants to... Um, say that's not true, but because Patterson told it to me and I'm hanging on to it as the truth. But between that painting, which is essentially meant to um, be an abstract painting about the relationship of gesture to hard-edge abstraction, where he's actually looking at the way in which he can escape the notion of the hard-edge of Molinari, and rain triptych, I think there's a world of difference. And the world of difference is 
the painting on the left started to bore him, and he was looking for a breakthrough way of connecting with his past. One way in which he did that was he thought to himself, if I'm really going to get into what excites me, if I'm really going to get into what made me an artist in the first place, I'm going to go back to what I know will give me pleasure. And his idea was to make a very large um, woodblock print. So he got himself a piece of plywood, four by eight. That's the image on the left, solar eclipse. And he actually gouged it with a chisel. Okay, so the image you saw of him at the very beginning where he's got the headgear on and he's holding a router, which is an electric tool, this first painting was actually done with a chisel by hand. And he inked it up, getting ready to pull the print. He looked at the work and he said, well, maybe that's the work. Because he loved the way in which the color would seem to be coming from within the wood itself. He loved the texture and he loved the sort of force of the image. So he never pulled the print, but he did that painting and then he thought, I'm on to something good. On the right uh, is Northern Lights, a painting incidentally that was purchased by Dennis Young, one of the uh, curators curator of contemporary art at the AGO in 1973, just after it was made. And by then, he's fully fledged into the notion of painting on plywood, doing something that gives him great pleasure. He loved doing these paintings. Uh, and the way he did them was, much like in that photograph, he'd put on knee pads, he'd put on a helmet, he'd hold his uh, router, he'd have the plywood, sometimes one piece, as in the one on the left, but the one on the right is actually two pieces, and he'd put it on sawhorses so it would lie flat, and he would literally crawl on top of the plywood. And I, there's, an, there's a film of him making some of his work upstairs if you haven't seen it, and he'd literally just essentially draw with the edge of the router, and then he'd lean over and paint. But he was often right in the middle of the work by virtue of having climbed onto the sawhorses. Uh, cloud over water on the left and right angle tree on the right. Um, I'm going to get to where these images came from, um, but I'm going to um, make the point that I do think this notion of uh, traverse over time, moving over time, reflecting on your own personal journey was a key to his introspection as an artist and to what he wanted to express. And uh, call me sentimental, but a right angle tree can be nothing. Uh, it has to start with the notion of the self-portrait, somebody who's reflecting on his notion of his own fragility, his own awkwardness uh, in life. Bandage man on the left and uh, Vincent on the right. Vincent is one of uh, Patterson's four sons. Uh, that's a poem that Vincent wrote. Vincent has been challenged all his life, um, uh, still in his, I think, late 50s, uh, living in a group home. Um, work on the left, Patterson said quite openly, yeah, it's bandaged man, but I guess it's me. And, um, uh, you know... I think in many ways that's what an artist does, is that they put themselves together through their work. And for, th for me, this work is about how Patterson put himself together, fell apart, and then pulled himself back together with the bandages. 
Satan's Pit on the left, which I think is from about 1988 or so, and the work on the right, which is Flying Rope from 2000. And um, I've often reflected on the notion of an artist's late work, the work they do towards the end of their life. I'm not being ominous, but this is one of the last paintings Patterson did. And I think the great artists deal with their physical challenges. So by this point, um, Patterson uh, had fairly severe arthritis. So the work on the left, Satan's Pit, uh, actually, if you look at it fairly closely, you'll see that the moon itself is galvanized steel. It's actually attached from behind. And Patterson told me that he made a big mistake. He was using the router, and he lost control, again, because he was, he was less capable than he was when he was younger, and the arthritis really was limiting to him. And he actually routed right through and ended up with this huge hole. And um, what I think is interesting about that is, you know, how does the artist respond to accident? How does the artist see in an accident possibility? And how does the artist then use that to make additional work. So in this case, he started a whole series of works where he just attached the galvanized steel from behind and created this real sense of depth. When you look at it, you'll see it. The black looks as though you could just go into it endlessly. And flying rope to me is, you know, brilliant in the sense that here's somebody who could not route anymore, but again, wanted to express, I would see it again as a life stream or something moving through space. And so he attached it to the surface. But he attached it to a surface that had been worked on in such a way that you have this real sense of the action of the artist on the surface of the painting. So I want to show a few images um, that maybe talk about uh, influence. Uh, but maybe what interests me more than influence is um, community. So uh, Eric Fischel, uh, the great American figurative painter who knew Patterson when they were both at the Nova Scotia School of Art and Design in the mid-1970s, says of Patterson that he gave me permission to try new things. And, you know... Uh, I'm actually finding myself less and less interested in influence, which is often just a stylistic copying. I'm more interested in community and this idea of permission. Does an artist give another artist permission to think in a different way? And I was in, um, I was in Philadelphia yesterday and in the great Duchamp rooms at the Philadelphia Museum of, of Art. And I thought of my father, who told me that Duchamp was the most important artist of the 20th century and certainly the most influential, not Picasso. And I, st I, st I stood there looking at these works and again deeply understood that idea that great artists give other artists permission to try something new. And... Um, one of the reasons why I was so convinced that we should do what we did for Patterson, which is to create this study collection for, that will be here forever, was because I think that he had such a reach on the lives of other artists. And there are still artists who come up to me and say, in one way or another, Patterson gave me the permission to trust imagery again. So I was asked today, you know, why do I think Patterson's a great artist and what's his contribution? And I think it is around the idea that at a time when painting 
1970, 71, 72, was really being questioned as a way of self-expression. There was conceptual art, there was minimal art, there was uh, real birth in interests around photography. There was something in the notion of painting that was discredited. And Patterson, along with other artists, and I'll talk about a few in a moment, found a way to get back into imagery through the way of making paintings in an original way that actually helped us all believe in painting again, and indeed did so by marrying the traditions of painting and sculpture. So where did it all begin? On the left is a, I'm going to say, awkward uh, watercolor by a uh, tw- uh, 23-year-old, 26-year-old uh, Patterson Ewan who had gone on a sketching trip with Goodrich Roberts. That's Goodrich Roberts' painting on the right. They were done approximately at the same time. The one on the left was actually done uh, on a sketching trip with Goodrich. And then upstairs you'll see a work by Goodrich Roberts that was done on that sketching trip as well. So we can see here that um, Patterson is trying to figure out a way through the reality of being in a place. So you have to imagine that he painted this much like that image of him in the landscape. Right? He's got this easel up, he's in the landscape, and he's looking directly at his subject. And that comes from trying to figure out how to emulate the work of Goodrich Roberts. And Patterson and John Fox and Don Barrett, who were all part of a small group who were very committed to Goodrich, um, idolized him to the extent that they bought trench coasts that were identical to Goodrich. They used to walk like Goodrich. They had a cap like Goodrich. And... Um, and I guess, suppose sadly, um, Patterson was as uh, depressive and so was Goodrich. I mean, there was something about that real uh, identification with a senior artist. So this is a painting we own uh, on the left. It's by Patterson. It's also of Remy Paul Forg, the uh, automatist poet. And I show this not because I knew that Patterson actually looked at this great work by Cezanne, which is in the National Gallery in London, Um, But to say that Patterson from a very early age was looking at other artists to try and think about issues such as sensibility and the notion of what I'd call the introspective life. I mean, Patterson was a big, loud, sometimes loud, um, sometimes big drinking uh, fellow. Um, And he was, in some of those moments, truly out in front of you. But he was always introspective. He was always thinking about what the work of art meant to him. And so I just thought I'd show you these two to say that at that very early age, because on the left, this is painting from 1950, Patterson's got this sensibility and he's looking to Cezanne for sensibility and he's trying to find a way to articulate something about the interior life. So uh, on, the to- on the left, on the top is an image of a series of life stream paintings. Uh, so I showed you one earlier, 1959, passage of something through space, the notion of traversing a life, of thinking about your passage as you get older, as you mature, as your life experience aggregates and you become something else. I do think that is what the life stream represented for him. And it had a very specific reference, which I think is also related to that notion of passage over time, to um, the totem pole. And Patterson often 
talk to me about the totem poles in the Royal Ontario Museum, which were, even though he was born in Montreal and lived in Montreal, he often came to Toronto, and that was a key and deep childhood memory. That notion that an object could hold a story, tell a narrative, be um, a vessel for something personal. And so even at this moment when he's trying to become abstract, he can't quite give it up, but he's thinking about that notion of what is the personal expression. Those of you who've gone upstairs would know that we've set up a room where there are three grease cones by Royden Rabinovich and two works in it, Rocks Moving in the Current of a Stream and um, Thunder Chain. So Royden Rabinovich and his twin brother David uh, had gone to the University of Western Ontario in 1965 to study English literature, and they were quite, um, as they are today, uh, articulate and opinionated and um, certain of not only their place in the art world but of the idea of objects and the meaning that they could have in the world, which is a beautiful and wonderful belief. Right, that objects can actually change your consciousness. And they got to know Patterson because Patterson um, had had a really debilitating uh, depressive episode. He went to the Veterans Hospital in London, Ontario because he was a veteran and he could have free treatment there. He had electric shock, shock therapy. He went through a range of treatments that actually, in his view, cured him not forever, but certainly at that point. He was visited in the hospital by Greg Kernow, uh, who had heard that he was in town, and Greg was somebody who was curious about other artists. He knew about Patterson in relation to Bourdieu and the automatists, and a few other artists came by, and Patterson was really moved by that. So he came out of the hospital and thought, well, what am I going to do? I'm not going to go back to Montreal. His marriage had ended. He'd given up his studio. He'd quit his job. Uh, he stayed in London. He got a job teaching high school at H.B. Beale, and then subsequently and fairly quickly by about 1972, I think it was, so three years later, he had a job teaching at the University of Western Ontario where he stayed until he retired 20 years later. By the way, Jeffrey Rands, who was a great English professor at the university, told me once that he was looking for an outside examiner for a Ph.D. thesis on Nabokov, and he had Patterson as the outside uh, examiner, and the Patterson had read all the books and was the most interesting interviewer of the PhD candidate he'd ever had in a um, thesis defense. That's just an aside. That's the sort of thing that you heard from me that you won't hear anywhere else, and you can use it at a dinner party sometime. Um, so why am I showing these two together? Because he comes out of the hospital starts teaching at H.B. Beale. He has a studio in downtown uh, London, and he meets the Rabinovich brothers, and he starts hanging out with them. He plays chess. He goes out for drinks, whatever. And at one point, Royden goes to Patterson's studio to see what he was doing. He had a small studio, and he was doing some version of those live stream paintings. Now, when I say those live stream paintings, I mean the one that's long and thin and that I refer to as a marriage of gesture and hard-edge abstraction. And uh, Royden said to him, these are really boring. And um, Patterson said, you know what, they are. And think about it. So he had been doing paintings like that in Montreal. He has this, you know, 
He stops painting for eight or nine months as he recovers. And he goes back into a studio in a different city, in a different context, in a different community, and starts making the same paintings as he did before. And I guess my question is, why wouldn't that be boring? Why wouldn't it be boring to do what you had done in another life and just transposed it into a new situation? And so Patterson stopped making work. He began by making a few paintings like Rain Triptych, the one of the three panels with the small little uh, raindrops that separated by size. And then, having seen some of the grease cones and other work by other artists who were using materials in different ways, he made Thunder Chain. And Thunder Chain and Rocks Moving in the Current of the Stream are representations of nature through unusual material. So if this wasn't a work imprisoned in an art museum, and alas, it is, uh, you would have had the pleasure that I did. Well, I can't actually tell you I did this, can I? But I did. Which is you pick up the thunder chain and you let it drop against the galvanized steel and it sounds like thunder. And so for Patterson, this was a completely experiential piece in which the use of materials translated into not just how landscape looked, but how it was experienced. Just the same as Royden Rabinovich's um, grease cones, which are about, in a way, the toughness of the material and how something that is industrial can be beautiful, also engages you in the experience of imagining uh, what they're made out of. So one of the reasons why I um, have trouble with the word influence is because <clears throat> influence seems too much like a one-way street. And I think influence is uh, uh, not always about that. It's mutual. It's exchange. It's conversation. It's ideas in the air. It's, um, and it isn't necessarily where you get an idea that actually makes a difference. It's how you use that idea and how that idea becomes you. <clears throat> so on the left is this great constellation piece from the mid, uh, late 1970s by Patterson. It's eight feet square. It's got the uh, little pieces of uh, corrugated steel that are nailed on the front. There's gouging all the way through. There's this reference to a grid, which comes out of scientific diagrams. Um, you know, you really feel as though you're in this painting. And on the right is a similarly scaled work from the early 1970s by David Gordon, who was an artist who had a studio in 19 King, one floor down from Patterson, and they used to play chess all the time. So what's my point? My point is, isn't that Patterson's work is a lesser work because I'm showing you something that was done 10 years before by a younger artist on a similar theme uh, because Patterson was part of that moment in which they talked about the notion of the heavens where they looked at Scientific American together and Patterson did a lot of drawings and started to do the plywood work right about this time. My point is that Patterson found a way to make an idea his own by doing it in a way no one else had done it, which was to create an image in which, which came out of being in the painting in a certain way and bringing the almost 
by appearance, bringing the image out of the painting itself. So painting on the right, which I think is pretty terrific, I've never actually seen it, but it's a pretty terrific painting and it's got a sort of life to it, was actually just a series of um, appliques to the surface of handmade paper. Uh, in the end, a very different uh, painting than Patterson's, but coming from a similar uh, source, which was this interest in scientific illustration. So here's my point. My point is I would be hard-pressed to make a serious or sustainable comment about the notion of influence here, but I do make a comment about community, exchange of ideas, conversation, and I think in the end the artists who make the biggest difference are those that find a way to make their vocabulary truly their own. So here's another one, Thunder uh, Cloud is Generator on the left-hand side. <coughs> Patterson did three of these paintings. We have number two. And uh, <coughs> this was one of those done at the same time as Rain Triptych. He did a series of them uh, which were literally based on scientific diagrams. He was interested in how things worked. I'm going to come back to that in a moment, why well, I think that's so interesting. And um, But... In the commitment to the idea that you could take this small thumbnail diagram from a scientific magazine and make it into a eight-foot-tall painting, and it could be interesting and engaging, and which I think it is, he was inspired in part by the example of Philip Guston. Philip Guston some people like to say is one of Canada's most important artists because he was born in Montreal, but he moved away when he was two, so I think that might not quite count. <clears throat> he also changed his name. I always wanted to do a show called Frank Goldberg and Philip Goldstein because Frank Goldberg was Frank Gehry, born in Toronto, and Philip Goldstein was Philip Guston, born in Montreal, but I haven't done it yet. But, you know, maybe I should do that. Okay, anyway... Um, so what I did in the exhibition upstairs is I put together a room of Philip Guston. And uh, I put it together because it was the most powerful way in which I could make the point that I made earlier about Eric Fischel, which is the notion of permission. Because I think that um, uh, what Philip Guston did, and Patterson never met Philip Guston. He met Barnett Newman once in uh, Montreal, but he never met Philip Guston. Um, I think he would have liked to, was that Philip Guston gave him permission to go to his childhood, to go back to imagery, to go back to the illustrational quality, which is sort of the diagrammatic quality that I'm showing you that exists in both artists' work. And in a way, and it's a word that David Gordon used in talking about Guston, to go to the pathos of your memory, right? So you go to what sort of haunts you in a way or what's maybe not quite graspable. So in Guston's case, uh, it was the whole horror of the South and Ku Klux Klansmen and Philip Guston painted mostly at night and many of these images that he made are about the reflections on what it means to be alone. Whereas Patterson also does sort of an unknowable thing, which is to try and... Um, uh, yearn for that place in the heavens and understand what that means and it's a deep space for him and so it's not quite pathos but it is a sort of similar sense of yearning or recollection and um, uh, uh, Philip Guston I think opened up that idea for him 
it unleashed something. So it wasn't that by this point, Patterson wasn't already doing some of the scientific diagrams. He wasn't, it wasn't that he wasn't already, hadn't already done rain triptych when there was a big spread on Philip Gustin and Art in America in 1971 that Patterson saw, but it was that it reaffirmed this notion that living in your childhood and the opposite of boring is having fun. Having fun again was okay. That was the sort of thing that opened up for Patterson. On the left is Moon Over Water, and on the right is one of a number of uh, images that I have where I actually went through Patterson's library and took images of various source photographs. I can't say this is precisely the source photograph, but when Patterson would make a work, he'd literally have the source photograph or the image or sometimes a small watercolor he he had uh, completed beside the big painting, and he was using it as reference. And um, there are some very specific relationships between uh, works and (coughs) Patterson... uh, came out to see me in Saskatoon because I was a curator at the Mental Art Gallery in Saskatoon and I did an exhibition of his early work and I needed to spend some time with him, which I did and we bonded in part um, at that time because um, when he got there I said, listen Patterson I'm a bachelor and I only know how to make spaghetti so I'm going to um, make a pot of spaghetti and we're going to have it all week and um, he said, that's great I thought, you're my kind of guy so we had a, a great week together, and um, while he was there, he actually made some watercolors. And um, one day I came home, because I was working, but I would be interviewing him during the course of the weekend and in the evenings and whatever. And he had done an image of a tornado. It was a great watercolor. And I uh, came back the next day, and he was laughing his head off, and I said, what's so funny? He said, well, I did it on the basis of this image that I thought was a tornado, but it's actually a water spout. In other words, he'd used completely the wrong source material to make the painting. And so um, uh, I have that. I'll show it to you. I can't show it tonight. But I have the photograph of the watercolor and the wrong source that he made from water spout into a tornado. But the work still has great, great. But I remember him laughing. He thought this was so funny. And he said, I'm an amateur scientist. What can I do? So uh, Haley's Comet is seen by Giotto, which is not only an iconic image for Patterson, but also probably one of the most powerful ways in which you can understand that Patterson really did make images by virtue of how they were made in which you could truly, your imagination could truly live. So I find when I look at the paintings, you know, what, what, what I respond to in part is that the color is sometimes on the surface and sometimes coming up from the wood itself. And so there's this layer of expression and of application that makes these paintings, which are only you know, an inch and a half thick, appear to have very deep space. And once they do have that deep space, they conjure up for me the notion of a place where I can be. And uh, this painting has that for me. And it was... Um, done shortly after he came back from the Venice Biennale, where he represented Canada in 1980. And um, he went to see the uh, Arena Chapel, and he saw Giotto's frescoes, and uh, he loved the blue. And so he did this in homage to that. Similarly, Surface of the Sun, which we own, incidentally, but which I took out of the installation because it wasn't quite working and I actually, for those of you who have seen the show upstairs, you'll see that I completely underhung it and left a lot of white space because I actually wanted people to 
take their time and slow down. But this painting is literally the surface of the sun. It's a completely all-over painting, and it was uh, related to this image, which is from one of his scientific textbooks. So this is my last image, and then I'm happy to answer questions and whatnot. But um, uh, this is rocks moving in the current of the stream. And uh, when I was a boy coming to the Art Gallery of Ontario, I used to uh, stop in front of the Chardin painting. And I don't know how many of you conjure up an image when I say that, but it's a painting in the collection of the Art Gallery of Ontario, and it's the apricot jar, and it's got a little knife that goes beyond the surface of the, the edge of the table. It's got a little jar. And I used to look at that with wonder, and I think maybe it's still my favorite painting. But again, in homage to Patterson, it's partly because it reminds me of my childhood. And, uh, but if there isn't, if it's not number one, then rocks moving the current of the stream is. So I um, thought that I'd take a huge risk uh, which is to actually tell you why. And uh, someone said to me, would you take it home? I said, not only would I take it home, I'd put it in my bedroom so I'd see it every day. Because um, there is a personal way in which I see this painting, and then there is a conceptual way in which I see it. So uh, the personal way in which I see it is twofold as well. One is in terms of Patterson himself. So I know that he did this at a time when he was really starting to have fun again, when he was relating to material, when he was finding a way to get back into painting in a satisfying and deeply meaningful way for himself. Um, on the other personal side, it has for me a, um, a, uh, the attributes of walking through the David Balfour Park and looking into the riverbeds and thinking about the stones that are in the riverbeds. So for me, it is like a Goodrich Roberts watercolor. It reminds me of my um, engagement with the visible world, and it is a translation of that visible world. So that's on the sort of personal side. But on the conceptual side, I think it's so interesting that Patterson has said to himself that painting something or making an image of something the way it looks isn't enough, but to actually add to it a layer of how does it work. So it takes you into a different state of consciousness, right? How something looks allows you to look at something and reflect on how it makes you feel. But once you start actually reflecting on how something works, you're actually in a different part of your brain. You're actually thinking about how things are put together. So I'm not going to say, therefore, it's like bandaged man, which is a self-port of someone who's put himself together. But this is still this notion of how do you put together the idea of scientific fact and how do you understand it. So this is rocks moving in the current of the stream that then show you that the big rocks turn on the bottom. As they turn more and more, they get smaller. They start to float because they lose their gravity, and sooner or later they become small uh, stones that move quickly. And uh, for me, that's a very powerful idea that you could make a work of art in two registers, that it could be both personal and it could be conceptual. And it's a powerful idea for me because it relates to um, the idea that I carry with me all the time about what makes powerful art, but also what makes powerful institutions. 
And that is that um, I think that great art does two things. It gives you pleasure and it empowers you to see the world differently. Some art does one and some art does the other and sometimes you can't quite tell what's going on. But great art does both. And I think great institutions do both. They give you pleasure, and I hope that the AGO is a place that gives you all lots of pleasure, which is a place of repose and a place of contemplation. But I also think that great art gives you a language to understand how the world works, how some aspect of the world works, how our identities are formed, how um, we might actually communicate with one another by finding uh, new languages. Um, that's, for me, the empowerment side. And I think that uh, when you see a great work of art, you respond on the basis of both, in my experience. There's something deep and pleasurable about it, and there's something that makes the world seem a bit bigger because something has been unlocked in your understanding of how something works. So rocks moving in the current of a stream does that for me in a very deep way. And um, the only reason... I don't steal it is um, because if I stole it, I'd end up in jail and then I wouldn't have it in my bedroom. So it, it doesn't work. But um, uh, in any event, uh, that's it. I have lots more to say. I just thought I'd sort of take you through my thinking about, about why the exhibition is constructed the way it is. Uh, when you walk up, you'll see the Philip Guston room, you'll see the Bourdieu room, which is meant to link him back to the automatists, you see a room of his collection, uh, which his widow gave to us as a way of marking those relationships he had in the community, including not just with the Rabinovich brothers, but with other younger artists. Um, and you'll see, I think, that I hope you see in the way that I've installed the exhibition that there is a dialogue between his work that takes place throughout his career. And that, in fact, although he finds uh, different ways to express himself, he is the same Patterson Ewan from the beginning to the end. Anyway, thank you very much. I'm happy to take questions if there are. We have microphones. We're actually recording this podcast in the web, so we have to record questions as well. So if you just well, you have a microphone either side. Who's going to ask the first question? I've got one over here, Joe. Oh. Uh, so thank you for that. That was a fantastic speech uh, or lecture. Um, so much of what he's doing, as, as I understand it, is dealing with a sort of scientific method or an interest in early science, and you, you went on to that. It, but much of what art uh, does when it tackles nature in particular is the kind of... Um, and you alluded to this and how things work, the, the spiritual nature of, of uh, uh, the spiritual aspect of nature. And he seemed to go in a completely different way, which was the mechanic uh, nature or aspect of nature, how it works, how things relate to each other. Lots of it's very diagrammat- diagrammatic. Was he a spiritual man? Or do you think he was um, tackling with that in, in, and he was balancing those two different approaches? Uh, I think is there a question in there? That's what I. Yeah, <laughs> no, I think you're expressing it well, actually. And uh, I certainly don't think he was a religious fellow, but I do think there was some kind of spiritual thing. But you know, the way in which I answer that is to talk about the word wonder. 
And the word wonder is about something unknowable, in a way. You know, it's you're, you're searching for trying to figure out, wondering what that is. So Patterson's looking at the scientific diagram is wondering about what that meant, what that, um, how that illustration related to real-world phenomena. So if that's rain, what did it feel like to be in the rain? And could he make that leap? That's the wonder. It's that space. And I think that um, that's a, the, the word wonder is what I'd also use to describe the space in many of his paintings, where you're wondering about that infinite space. You're wondering about the, um, what you could actually see. Because keep in mind, Patterson rarely saw what he painted. He was painting them, making them from illustrations. Um, there's actually one painting that certainly isn't that in the exhibition, because he did actually see it, and I'll explain that in a moment. But most of them were about the translation of an illustration into an image, and because he hadn't seen it, that was all about the notion of wonder. So I use the word wonder because I think that is related to something spiritual, that sense of, I'm not saying ecstasy, but ref, you know, big reflection. The one work which I know was based on observed phenomena was is Sundogs, which is in the big room with the three life streams on it. And he made it when he came up to Saskatchewan, to be the artist-in-residence at Emma Lake Artist Workshops, which was the workshops where Clement Greenberg had been and Jules Olitsky and Colorfield painting was took hold in Canada. And uh, he was invited to be the artist-in-residence, and it was awful for him. It was I mean, he had a breakdown, actually. And he um, started Sundogs when he was there, and he couldn't finish it, and he left after two days, and it was terrible. And I felt badly because I had sort of set it up for him. But he went back to London, and about three months later, he finished the painting. And that's based on something that he saw that he was truly wondrous about. Can you be wondrous about something? I don't know. He wondered about it. It was enveloping. And that is that on the prairies, I don't know how many of you have seen this, but the sun reflects in ice crystals, and it looks as though there are three suns in the sky. So you sometimes can see the horizon and see three suns, and he loved that. He talked to me about that. And that painting is based on that observed phenomena. But most of the time, he's really working with the gap between something that he's seen represented but never actually seen. See, I feel just like the guys last night where they get asked a question but they don't actually really answer the question. (laughs) So uh, that's what I just did. It felt good, incidentally. Well, here's another question. Uh, first and foremost, thank you, Matthew. An excellent talk. Gave us some great insight into Patterson as an artist. My question has to do with the idea of the autobiographical within his artwork. Looking specifically at the lifeline works and then the later, more circular lined works like Satan's Pit and the, the Rope piece. Is he saying anything about a lifeline of sorts with those more circular Did works? Is he saying anything about what? about a, a lifeline of sorts with the circular works instead of a line that begins at one end of the canvas and exits, one that is circular instead? When somebody says to you, that was a really good talk, you have to think, now why is that person saying that? So you should know that Amanda and I work together eight hours a day in my office. <laughs> and... Uh, um, she doesn't actually believe that, but it sounded great. 
It was terrific. I believe it. Um, I don't. Uh, I don't know how to answer that question because I wouldn't read too much into that. You know, I think that. You know, for me to say oh, this one's squirrely and not straight means that he's thinking about this about himself versus that. I, I can't do that. Um, and I wouldn't do that. Um, um, you know, I once asked Patterson whether he hallucinated. And uh, he said no. Because I was interested in whether or not he made images out of his illness in that sense. Uh, and uh, and he said no. So I would never read those as being indicative of a certain state of mind in that specific way, saying that the straighter line is healthy or whatever. I would only say that I believe in many of these. I mean, look at rocks moving the current of the stream. It's about the traverse. It's about the life history. It's about where you come from and where you go to. And I think it's as powerful in a straight line as it is uh, in something curled. I have about six questions, uh, good ones, I think, but I'll limit it to, I'll limit it to one. Be uh, careful of the <laughs> academic in the audience. Uh, I've had several moments when, when looking at the work, uh, it's made me wonder uh, what interest, if any, Patterson had in folk or naive art. And a couple of things triggered that uh, question for me because... When you were talking about the strong relationship between the conceptual and the personal, I can associate that with a lot of folk or naive art as well. And then the the kind of immediacy, the relationship between sometimes kind of crudeness and sophistication in the work. Um, So the question is, was he interested in, did he look at uh, folk art, naive art? Does it have any role in, in... terms of influence and community here? Um, you know, it's so weird to sort of speak for, some, for an artist, you know, and I don't want to do it with authority because I don't fully know the answer to this. But, I, but when you go upstairs, you'll see in the collection panels, so you'll see work by younger artists from London, that there is one... Un, uh, work by an unknown artist, clearly an amateur artist that Patterson picked up later in life in the French countryside. But it's the only uh, sort of folk image that he had. Only, and, it's, and it's sort of... But where I think that... What I do think is that Patterson uh, believed in um, the idea, and that's why he collected the work of younger artists... Uh, that you could, that there was a direct expression that you could. You didn't need to be fully trained to be expressive. So that takes you towards folk art, but he didn't have any, none. I remember once we went to a party together. This is when he was drinking rather heavily, and it wasn't the most pleasant experience. But out of the blue, he stood up at this dinner party and then left. And he stood up, and for about five minutes, like completely like, unexpected and out of context he, he, he gave a speech about Matisse and it was all about you know he's, a great, he's the great artist and he sees and he does this and it was all about the I'm going to say 
the professionalism and the achievement of Matisse. So he didn't, in any conversation with me, hold on to some romantic notion that Grandma Moses was a great artist. He, uh, I think, was, uh, was thinking about great artists and referring to their expression and, and folk art didn't find its way. But I can see why you, why you say that. But there wasn't anything in his collection that represented that. And the books on his shelf didn't reflect that either. You can ask us another question if you want. There's a law, I will. The great, you know, the great dean of the architecture school at U of T can ask another question. Hello there. Uh, when I was a young boy, I remember seeing an NFB film um, by an artist, uh, Patterson Ewan, and um, it it uh, I I really enjoyed seeing this film, and and I lost track of it for years. And whenever I came to the gallery, I was looking for the artist who had the two or had the double last names, and that's all I could remember. And I remember um, or my, my wife Sarah helped me track track his, down his work again, and it was just amazing to see it uh, in in its form, and then also to see it in the in the, in the big exhibit. I introduced his work um, through images online to students of mine, and they absolutely adored his um, I guess the tactile elements, the the nails, the the wood, and the metal. And uh, it was neat to see it uh, influence a, a next generation. Comment. <laughs> That's a good comment. And I think that there is something inspiring about that. And, you know, I don't think that that uh, moment um, in which Royden says to Patterson, your work's boring, and Patterson says, yeah, you're right, is, I mean, it's a funny story, but it's a deep moment you know, of looking into yourself and thinking about your relationship to what you do. And um, I guess I'll say this autobiographically. Um, you know, my father, who was a painter, used to say that he spent 95% of his time thinking about what to do and 5% of his time doing it. And when I was a young boy, I used to think, God, that's a lot of wasted time. You know, <laughs> what's that all about? But, in fact, you know, it's really stayed with me. I wish sometimes that I could slow down and think about what I do a little bit more. And I think that when young students see a work by a real artist, they get that. You know, they get that the commitment to making images and objects of real meaning uh, is there. And so I think what you're partly describing, that inspirational feeling you have, is something in the work that's really very deep. I'm extremely fascinated by this whole thing of, you know, Patterson working a lot flat. When you're talking about when he's working on sawhorses and he's literally on top of the pieces working on them. Um, so working on the horizontal as opposed to working on a vertical surface. And, you know, when he's working on a horizontal, there's not necessarily any top or bottom or left or right in, when you start. But obviously, for him, there was a top and a bottom and a left and a right. So when the piece, the pieces where he was working in that manner, crawling around on top of them, and then when they 
lift up. Um, I mean, I don't, in this particular instance, I don't know how what the process was here, but there's there's a fascinating thing that happens from from working on that horizontal, and then when it lifts up and it finally does have a top and a bottom, like this, if the stream, like I don't know, is that the green edge is the edge of the stream, I guess. Yeah, but so, but at a certain point now it, it becomes the the top edge, and um, I you know I'm I'm really I'm fascinated by that because I think it's it's different than the process of when an abstract expressionist painting was a painter was dripping or I mean there's still when it's in the gallery it has a top and a bottom I mean generally most in most cases but there's something very different that in terms of the overall process that's going on with his relationship to imagery that that happens in a different way, Mm. I think, when it's lifted from the horizontal to the vertical. I mean, this is a very poorly articulated question, but I'm I'm fascinated by that shift, and I wonder what you could add about that. I don't actually think Steve Pakin did so well last night either, so it's okay. (laughs) Um, uh, Um... I think what you say is essentially true. There were times, I know, when Patterson was in the middle of a painting where he lost it and he was in it and he didn't know top from bottom. So in a way then, when you put it up, something happens. But I believe, virtually without exception, he started each painting by drawing the image on the surface first. So it wasn't that he just got in there and thought, okay, where do I stick the router? He had the outline of the moon. He had the waves and you can sometimes sometimes you didn't paint and sometimes you didn't crayon and sometimes you didn't thick pencil so you actually started with a drawing and um, again I think what you described still happened which is he got in the middle of it and he just it was ecstatic you can imagine I mean the things the things um, well he used to talk about the danger of it because if he lost control of the router you know he could really be injured so he's in the middle, there's extreme concentration, and you sometimes do lo- he said he sometimes did lose a sense of what the edges were. So I don't doubt that what you described happened, which was that when he pulled the painting up, he did see something different than when he was in it. Um, Matthew, I have no real reason to say that that was a great lecture, <laughs> but it was. Um, two things. One is... Um, I get this real sense of physicality and release when I look at his work, that they're both there. And you were talking about how both those, sometimes a great artwork is one way you can have these double sensations. Um, So I feel extremely that there's a sort of a groundedness and a real physical sense. At the same time, there's a rising up and a release from that physicality. I know that um, he was married to Francoise Sullivan, and I know that some of her performance work and her, and her dance work um, would have similar, some similar, um, some relationship in that sense of physical work out in landscape and then somehow rele- being released from sa- that. And I, here's my question. What, did you get a chance to talk to Francois Sullivan ever? Do you see her as part of his community at all? Um. 
Yeah, it's probably underexplored by anybody who's written about Patterson, uh, and I think it's a pretty interesting place to go. There were some drawings that Patterson did in 64, 65 that looked just like the drawings that Francoise did showing where the dancers would stand for one of her dances, and they were eerily similar. And to me, there's no doubt that the um, life stream paintings that are related to the uh, totem poles relate absolutely to Francoise's interest that Jean-Paul Mousseau had, and he actually made uh, costumes for some of her uh, performances in First Nations imagery. So I think there was a conversation absolutely that happened, uh, absolutely happened. And... um, uh, but it wasn't something that Francois talks about in any specific way. She's a bit of a, she's about as mystic as they get about that kind of stuff. And um, Patterson, you know, didn't love talking about his first wife. Oh, there's a. So, so maybe this two is more qu- questions. There's one there, and then I'll do there's a quick one, one there. A quick one. Um, so this is something that you you should be able to answer because it's about the way that you look at art, rather than how Patterson himself created art. And I was fascinated by your comment that art should both give pleasure, but also reveal something about the world's greater workings. So, and because of the nature of your job, which is curatorial and conceptual, how do you approach art so that it can still um, give you pleasure? What do you set aside the curatorial? Do you do you synthesize them both when you look, and and answer that maybe within the context of how, what Patterson himself collected? How do artists still get pleasure out of art? The old adage is, you know, no stand-up comedian can make another stand-up comedian laugh anymore because they just analyze it as work. How do you still get both, and how does one get it if they're a collector, for example? Um, and, and what goes through your brain when you're looking at art um, as, a, as, a, as a lover of art? Um, you know, when I... <laughs> early on in my relationship with, with Frank Gehry, I asked him about, you know, his studio and about which architects he liked. And he told me the story that, um, that uh, Robert Venturi came to his studio and spent two hours walking around and... Frank was a young architect, and he was all nervous, and they sat down, and Frank said, so? And Robert Venturi looked at him and said, you know, I don't like anybody's work but my own. (laughs) And uh, it's true, right? And uh, Frank might say the same, who knows? But actually, I don't think that's true. But what I'm saying is that, you know, artists, you don't often go into an artist's home and see a lot of work by their contemporaries on the wall. You just don't. Sometimes you see some historical things, but you don't often see them on the wall. And I don't think Patterson acquired work to live with it in that way. He acquired work that was, by the way, um, bundled up in the corner of his studio uh, to affirm something about the community in which he lived, show support for younger artists, show an interest in something that someone tried. Um, You know, there's there's a work by an artist, Don Bellamy. There are two images, a woman and a man, I think Adam and Eve, and they're being engulfed in flames. 
And, uh, you know, this artist ended up dying tragically in a fire. And, you know, Patterson just engaged with that representation. He didn't even know. I mean, he bought it while John was still alive. But it was that notion of such an intense, self-actualized image because Don was a bit, apparently a bit off the wall. But Patterson liked that intensity. But he didn't like the intensity and then put it on his wall because he wanted to look at it, but he wanted to affirm that connection that he had. You know, I'm a bit hobbled in my experience of art because um, there was a period of about um, three or four months in my career where I wasn't working. I had left, you don't need the details, but I had left the Mental Art Gallery in Saskatoon. I was moving to Boston uh, to be with my wife. I had a Canada Council grant, and I remember saying to Susan, you know, this is fabulous. I can look at art, and I don't have to translate it in relation to what I'm going to do with it. And I don't have that luxury. You know, I'm not saying I haven't had deep, deep experiences with art. I'm very lucky, right? Even as director, I've had some of the, I mean, you might even be jealous of some of the experiences I've had, but I'm always translating into use value. You know, um, and that hobbles me a bit. But um, um, not when you're in front of great art. Like when you're in the Prado and you're in front of Las Meninas, you know, you're there for an hour. Maybe even with your daughter, because that that can transport you. That can take you. But I'm often doing the rounds of the galleries, and it's, it's hard work because it's not, it's not neutral for me. So I'm not asking for sympathy. I'm just explaining that I'm always thinking about how can I apply this in a different situation, how do I like this in relation to that. And that's maybe you know, not enough of the pleasure piece. Thank you very much. I wonder... Uh, if you could help me with one of the pieces, which I really enjoy. It's really affected me when I saw the exhibit, and it certainly affected me when you put it up. And that's the black hole um, surrounded by the, the lovely color. And there are two things about that that I was curious about. One is that on the one hand, that black hole could be quite depressing. Um, but there's something about that painting which is, for me, um, very hopeful and very positive. So I wonder if you might be able to help me there to understand that sort of juxtaposition. But the other thing is, is your comment about the accidental nature of that piece of art and the fact that he you know, accidentally gouged the hole and, and the extent to which that is a factor in, um, in great art. I don't know uh, whether that's something that often happens or periodically happens or that artists even talk about. Mm-hmm. So... Um you know, in my job as director, I reflect often on the notion of leadership. What's leadership? And a leadership is in part the ability to see a good idea. You know, to actually respond to the unexpected and to say that has the possibility. Now, leadership is often judged invisibly by what you say no to. But it's also what you say yes to. And uh, I'm interested in the way you express your response to Satan's pit. Satan's pit as an optimistic painting because it is an optimistic <laughs> because it is an optimistic painting it, it no but it is an optimistic painting you I, I mean i i'm with you you look at it and particularly if you understand what it is right he, he, um, 
you know, he was making this painting. There's no way in the world, he said with conviction, not knowing if he was right, that Patterson was going to leave that painting unpainted. That wasn't the painting he was making. He was beginning the painting, which was going to be a moon, and he lost control. And in the end, there must have been a moment, in my judgment, of extraordinary exhilaration, where this thing had fallen completely apart, and then he figured out how to fix it, and then he left it. That must be an extraordinarily optimistic, exhilarating moment when you realize how to make something work out of an accident. And um, he called it Satan's Pit because I think he liked the dark and it was deep and it was, you know, what you fall into. But I think in the actual making of it, he was really excited about that painting. And I think it is because he made it work. He used to say, and I remember when I was a young curator, I heard this. I heard him say this, and he said it to me as well. When I start a painting, it can never fail. And, uh, God, I wish that was true about everything I did. But in any event, uh, um, you know, I thought that's so, and that is optimism, right? No matter, you know, it's like the bandaged man puts himself together. It's like his son, who has a lifelong challenges, can write a poem that's going to be immortalized, like it is on some level. And I think that's what art is, deeply affirming. Thank you very much, everybody. Thank you, Matthew. That was indeed excellent. And I know how busy you are, but you put your whole self into that. And it was made all the stronger for your very personal responses and your personal stories. So thank you very much. The only thing is you did it so well. I will ask you again. (laughs) But um, I'd like to tell you about some things we have upcoming. Next week, same time, same place, we have David Morris, who is a philosopher who teaches at Concordia, who's going to deliver a phenomenology of Patterson-Ewan. And I know he's prepared a really interesting talk, so please come back for that. Um, We also have, on May 18th, Luke Sant, who'll be talking about um, Robert Frank. Sorry, blanking for a second. Who, of course, is in our our abstract expressionist exhibition. So that will be excellent, too. And then we have an unusual thing. We're experimenting a little bit, and that is on May 8th, which is Mother's Day. We have a psychiatrist who is visiting from Cornwall, England, with his wife. He's here for a conference at Mount Sinai on the humanities and medicine. And he is going to lead a a tour of three pieces, and Patterson Ewan will be amongst them. And it's Artists as Diagnosticians of Culture. So that's a small tour. We're just taking 25 people. So please sign up for that as well. So thank you very much, Matthew. Thank you for listening to this Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. For additional recordings, as well as information on upcoming programming and events, please visit us online at ago.net slash talks.